You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC Sports. Brought to you by JohnnyTShirt.com, the go-to provider for all your Tar Heel gear. Welcome to the Inside Carolina podcast. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley. I'm joined by Jason Staples and Greg Barnes. That means it is the Game Plan podcast. Miami, Carolina, 3.30 on Saturday, down in Miami. Before we get started, I want to ask you guys a couple favors. One, we need to support Johnny T-Shirt and JohnnyTShirt.com. They are... Mm consistently having sales as the holidays approach use them buy your carolina gear for you your loved ones or me you can send me some carolina gear uh, i'll send you my address we can always use it but most importantly johnny t-shirt can always use the business and also rate us on apple Podcasts. give us a five-star rating drop a question in there we'll we'll get to it and subscribe Let's get right into it, boys. Uh, earlier in the week, Greg, Jason Staples, and I discussed the biggest Tar Heel games in recent history, and I contend that this one in sa- on Saturday is as big as any of them since the ACC championship game in 2015. What sayeth you? Yeah, I mean, I, if you phrase it like that, is this the biggest game since 2015, considering that North Carolina won five games in a two-year span since then? We're 500 last year uh i guess you you can make that argument however i would i would say that when you're number five in the country and everybody's looking at you and you you go down to tallahassee and completely lay an egg against a team that's that's not good um you this game would have been a lot bigger if, if you take care of business and that's what that's what the program building aspect is you, you got to win those games uh, you're going to lose games sometimes against a team like Virginia on their home field because Virginia is a pretty good team. Um, but you got to take care of business against the, the bad teams. And North Carolina did not do that. And so I'm hesitant to put too much emphasis on this game because they're out of the ACC race. That's over and done with. They're really just kind of building for next year, which, which has the potential to be a special year. Um, but given how everything's played out and the fact that uh, you, they have a chance to play in the Orange Bowl. Um, okay, I mean, that, that's a big bowl. Um, it's, you know, it doesn't carry the weight. You know, it did before college football playoff because there used to be only four big bowl games. Now there's six. But, but even so, that's a, that's a high-profile game on January 2nd. Uh, good for recruiting. Um, but, yeah, I have a hard time putting too much emphasis on this particular game in that regard just because of – uh, wasted opportunities earlier in the year. Yeah, I mean, here's the Orange Bowl. It still carries the name weight. I agree with you. It's not as important as it once was when it was one of those New Year's Day bowls that we always look forward to seeing when we were growing up. Um, and I'm going to freely admit, the folks on YouTube probably wondering where Jason went. Jason's uh, doing daddy duty. So he uh, he is – he has done this podcast from the hospital. He's done this podcast from the road. Now he's doing it as uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger in, oh no, it was Eddie Murphy in Daddy Daycare. So <laughs> I think you're talking about maybe kindergarten cop. Yeah, <laughs> Not a tumor. <laughs> See, Tommy, when, when we started doing this podcast, I think your boys are a little bit old, but when we started doing this podcast, we hadn't even thought about doing it on YouTube. So I, I did plenty of them with my daughter on my lap 10 years ago. Um, but I didn't have to worry about uh, people wondering where I was on the screen. <laughs> yeah. Changes everything we're... once we're on video. <laughs> Don't get me started, man. It's been that oh, way. We, we, we can do this entire episode as, uh, as Arnold if we want. <laughs> Put Arnold away, Jason, and tell me why you think uh, the game you said was bigger than this one. Um, so on our it, it's, it's hard in hindsight, right? That's the thing is in, in hindsight, I would say that the South Carolina game, the first game of max tenure is bigger than this game. And it's, and it's going to remain the biggest game until further notice simply because that was a game that North Carolina 
even when even when North Carolina was at its peak under Larry Fedora, they consistently lost that game. <laughs> right? That was the game where even against a middling SEC team opener, you've got a good chance to beat them. You should beat them. All you have to do is run freaking hood up the middle three times inside the five-yard line, and you win. And they lose that game over and over. You have a chance to beat Georgia, a good SEC team, and you find ways to, to, to squander that one away. For Mac Brown to come in game one and beat South Carolina in that game, in that context, with a true freshman quarterback from the city of Charlotte, it's going to be hard to top that one in terms of importance for the program, in terms of what that did for recruiting, what that did for Mac basically being able to stake his, his flag in the ground and be like, the Mac is back. This is, my, this is my neighborhood. I left for a little while. Some people came in, started acting like they were big man on campus. South Carolina's little brother. NC State will show you guys who the, who the brand is in North Carolina soon. All of this stuff, was that's set in motion by that first win. Now, going into it, none of us thought it would be that big because it's one of those where, well, you know, what do you expect this year? It's year one, all that. It'd be a really big game. I remember we talked about it. It'd be a really big game if they won it just because of the implications. But, you know, if you lose it, eh, you know, that's kind of how things have been. But, the, but to win that game was so big. Whereas with this one, the thing that's really frustrating is North Carolina could win this game, could beat Miami, and the Orange Bowl still take Miami. Yep. And, and just because Miami's from Miami, and they may think that in, in COVID time, that's going to get a few more people to come or whatever else if, they, if, they, if they're fans. That, that may end up happening. I mean, who knows what's going to happen there? Oh, well, we want to minimize travel. Or, you know, just any number of things. So, to me, this is one of those games that it, it's, it's definitely, I would say, top five, probably top four in the MAC era. But I, I would say it would – and I agree, with, I agree with Greg that the Florida State game earlier in the year when, when top five ranking, national, national game, that one also comes in above this one. And this one would be that much bigger if – they hadn't laid an egg in the first half in that game. And I say in the first half because they, they won the rest of the game. So, you know, they, after about the first uh, quarter and a half, they won the rest of that game, and people forget that. But, uh, but yeah, I think, I think this is an important game, but it's not the most important. It's, uh, it's still too early to think about that Florida State game because, God, that, that'll go down similar to the South Carolina game in 15 as to that that game is the one that kept us from having the special season, you know, Greg, um, looking at it though, let's talk about this purely as a, a one, a winner loss. I think winning this game is hugely important. I'm not necessarily one to think that if they lost, it is that detrimental. Where do you stand there? Yeah, I think it is important. Um, again, I'm, I'm trying to look at this year especially, not only because of, of COVID and everything that this year has entailed, but just I'm, I'm trying to look at the Mac Brown uh, time period, the era as a whole, and not get too ramped up over each individual week. Um, you know, I'll, let, <laughs> I'll let the fans do that because that's, you know, when, when you live and die by each win and loss, I get it. Um, but this is going to be a, a process, and this is going to be a situation where last year, I mean, before the season started, everybody was telling people behind the scenes, Mac and company were telling people behind the scenes, get to a bowl game. Like, let's try to get to 500. Let's get to a bowl game, and we'll be happy. We'll try to build on that. Same thing this year, right? Not necessarily get to a bowl game. Let's do better than we did last year. Let's try to get to seven and eight wins. Um, let, let's show development, let's show improvement. I think they knew there was going to be some concerns defensively. And then really set the stage for, for 2021 to be this year where the team can be good enough in all three phases to challenge for the Coastal title and to have a, like, a legitimate shot to get to the ACC championship game and maybe win it. Um, and so I think within that context, 
this game is important because if you lose this one, I mean, we've talked about before, you lose this one, your best game this year is a win over an NC State team without a starting quarterback. I mean, that is the feather in your cap. Uh, and then you're talking about finishing at seven and four with a really bad loss at Florida State. That, I mean, you talk about must wins, Tommy. That makes the bowl game really a must win because the last thing you want to do is finish seven and five with three of your last four games being losses. So I do think from that perspective, this is a very important game, not just to play well, but to be able to win. So that regardless of what happens in the bowl game, you can take a you know, successful season into 2021, into the spring season. Uh, you can sell that to recruits, and that really sets you up for a good year next year. Yeah, the way you detail uh, the, the worst-case scenario, uh, the losses, it kind of reminds me of a – previous coaching staff's season you know eight eight and four eight and five with a bunch of crap at the end it seemed like that was a thing to do mm -hmm. back there jason let's move on to the game a little bit of course after the break we'll directly talk about the the game plan portion but you know you can't hear about miami without hearing about Derek king and everybody that knows it's not just a carolina thing but for carolina purposes they've struggled with guys that can run and you know, I didn't think he was a great passer until I watched him cook NC State in that ball game, throwing some good balls. But the one thing I look at is he is a full 200 yards better if these stats on the Miami website are correct than any Miami running back um, after sack yardage included. He's 400 yards better if you include sack yardage or if you don't take away the sack yardage. But that in itself has got to scare a lot of North Carolina fans. Got to scare Jay Bateman as well, right? Yeah, he's he's actually when you, when you factor in sack yardage, I think he's second on the team in in uh, in rushing to Cameron Harris, but it's close. Right. And once you take out sack yardage, well, it's I think he's actually the leading rusher for him. And you know, uh, I know North Carolina fans probably believe like every other team in the, in the like every other fan base in the country probably believe that. North Carolina is uniquely bad at stopping running quarterbacks, but they're not. Everybody struggles with it. It's hard for everybody. Now, North Carolina's not good at it <laughs> so far this year. They have struggled with it. And all you have to do is look at that Florida State game that we've brought up a couple times. Florida State had a, uh, had a quarterback who runs like King does, but is a little more limited as a passer. And he was able to get free and make some make some key plays. You look at the first offensive play that 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 of that game for Florida State, and that's exactly what North Carolina has to prevent in this game. And you know when I broke that that play down a few weeks back to show what happened, everybody, the scheme, the, the play call, everything was in everything was in position for that to be a tackle for loss. One guy stepped the wrong way, and it's a touchdown. That's the stuff that will burn you with King. That's what kills you with a running quarterback is there's a lot less margin for error in your fits, in your run fits and in your rush lanes. It, when you've got a it's, – it's the same thing as, like, as when you have a great passer. When you're playing against the Elf, when you're playing against Trevor Lawrence, or when you're playing against Sam Howell and Sam's got time to throw – your corners have to be – your corners, your safeties, your linebackers, all your coverage players have to be pretty much perfect because if there's a seam there, that guy's going to find it. And all of a sudden, you're going to look at some potential big plays. It's the same way with a guy like Derek King as a running quarterback where against a normal quarterback, that's not, a, that's not an issue. Like, oh, you know, you're, you're two feet, three feet out of, your, out of your proper lane. You know, you're coming on the blitz and – you're knocked off your, off your landmark by, by a yard. Against a normal quarterback, that doesn't matter. Against King, that might be 60. And that's the problem. And, and he does throw it better than, say, uh, Travis for, for Florida State does. He throws it better than some of the runners that, that, uh, that North Carolina has played so far this year. It, although I will say, I think it, a, lot of, a lot in this game depends on which De'Eric King shows up. Because he, he's been really hot and cold as a thrower this year. He's had some games where he's missed three or four throws that could have blown the game open for them and just 
absolutely airmailed a guy who's wide open down the field, you know, on a, on a vertical route that is a throw that, you know, you, Greg, or I could all make potentially. And he just missed it. And then uh, you, you go back to actually, you know, honestly, the best thing that could happen for this game, I think for North Carolina is, is, is if it's a rainy game. Cause he struggled throwing the football when it's wet. So you go back to that, that Virginia game that they played Virginia very nearly beat him in a very close game. And he missed a bunch of throws in that game. And it was, it was a wet ball. It was a, it was a wet game. And I suspect he's got small hands given, given his, his height. I suspect he's got smaller than average hands and that may, may play into this, but you know, that's one of those things where (laughs) pray for rain, I guess, but he's been a streaky thrower either way, even with a, with a dry ball when he's on, if he's, if he's hitting those throws down the field that that you're going to try to force him to make, then you tip your cap. Miami's probably going to win the game. If you're getting the guy that played against Virginia, if you're getting the guy that has played, you know, a half here, a half there, where he's, he's been scattershot, North Carolina might win, win the football game just by virtue of that. So inconsistency there, but the key is really you've got to start by, by stopping his legs. Greg, yeah. I, let, let me correct myself. Since I, Miami's official site, their stats were jacked up. It was not organized right. You're right. Cameron Harris um, is the leading rusher on that team. De'Eric King's second by a very large margin. Go ahead, Greg. Yeah, I was just going to say with, with De'Eric King, I do think Jason's on point here with when we talk about the rain and some of these things, his only limitation is, is kind of his size. Um, you know, listen to this offseason. Listen to uh, Rhett Lashley, uh, an interview with him talking about King when they got him. Um, it was really fascinating to listen to him because he, he really made the point that, that, look, is he the fastest guy? Nah. Is he the quickest? Nah. He's short. Um, is he the best thrower of the football? Nah. I mean, you know, he's better than average, but he's no Sam Howell. But what it comes down to is the kid is a winner. We talk about it more uh, with basketball than we do football, but some kids just have it, right? They have the ability to, to win games and to make plays when they have to make plays. And that's what King does. And so I, you, I understand it, but you see it a lot on the message boards. Like, ah, you know, he's not that great of a passer. You know, some of his deep balls are wobbly. And, um, and you do. I mean, if you look just strictly at mechanics and you look at how he does things and his size – Without looking at the full picture, it is easy to think, eh, I mean, he's good. I don't know how he's as good as he is, but he's good. Uh, but he's just very impressive in getting things done. Um, and you know, they utilize the RPO game quite a bit. I think the fact that, that Lashley you know, really was was born and bred in, in Gus Malzahn's system, um, I mean, I, I, the fact that he was quarterback for Gus in high school is, is just a trip to me. Um, but when he was at Auburn – as OC and granted, you know, that was Gus's offense, but Auburn, uh, they rushed, they averaged over 250 yards on the ground in three to four years that he was, he was helping run the offense. Um, so he's got that skill set. He, he understands what it takes to run the ball successfully. And one of the reasons that they parted ways is he wanted to uh, put more of a, a passing offense in, which is why he's got some of those air raid concepts, but he understands how to use players that are dual threats. And I think that's one of the reasons it's helped Miami's offense dramatically this year, but just the fact that Lashley understands how to maximize a kid like King's talents and the fact that King is a kind of, I mean, he's a winner. That's what he is. It's one of the reasons they've had so much success this year. So before we go to the break, I want to bring up one thing here uh-huh. and that's, there's a big split with Derek King between no pressure and under pressure. So, all the caveats of pro football focus numbers aside, I mean, obviously they're, you know, they're not perfect. But his no pressure, his, his not under pressure stats, 67.4 completion percentage, 8.4 yards per attempt, 18 touchdowns, four picks, and a, uh, a grade, an overall grade pro football focus of 93.7 when not under pressure. Folks, that is elite. 93.7 is really good. Under pressure, 44% completion percentage, two touchdowns, no picks. That no picks is, is important. 23 stacks, 
and a 53 overall grade from Pro Football Focus. So when he's under pressure, based on Pro Football Focus grades, he's half as good as when, he's, when he doesn't have pressure. And that includes, by the way, when, he, when he's pressured and has to scramble and all of that stuff. So this is one of those games where a lot of people might think, yeah, your best bet, given how well he runs, is you just need to rush four, just rush your four defensive linemen and just let him, let him, let him run, you know, let, let him uh, try to throw it downfield. If you do that where there's, <laughs> where there's no – she, she, agrees. That, she agrees. Sorry, everybody. She agrees. Yeah. If you do that where there's nobody or where there's uh, nobody in his face and he's able to sit back with no pressure, he's had a ton of success. When you, uh, when you do that where you're able to get any pressure on him at all, so I think there's going to need to be some, some emphasis on getting pressure in the context of uh, – <laughs> in the context of making sure that you, that you keep him contained – that can really change things for you. So I think that has to be a big emphasis for North Carolina this week is finding ways to get pressure on him while not getting out of control and giving those, those, those rush run lanes up the field. Yeah, and the, the, the challenge there, Tommy, is when you look at what he's done when he's been blitzed, uh, his numbers are, are, again, really good. They're 88.6 grade. Um, he's got a... 70%, 69.4% adjusted completion percentage, eight touchdowns, zero interceptions. So there is a difference there. Jason's not saying, hey, just, just blitz him, get pressure on him. You have to successfully get pressure on him. And that's, that's the challenge. And what we've seen Jay Bateman do a lot this year, and we can get into this in the game plan portion, uh, but he'll, he'll overload one side, but still only send four people. And so those are the kind of things you're going to have to look for instead of just sending a bunch of five-man and six-man blitzes, uh, because that, that's, that's a tough ask for this defense to do and expose yourself so much down the field. Now, the good thing is that Miami doesn't have traditional Miami receivers in terms of – I mean, they've got some good ones, and they've got some guys that can beat you deep and can run, run by you, but they're not – you know, uh, there's no Andre Johnson among this group, so that helps. But, but yeah, you can't just blitz him. You have to get pressure – I do think if there's anything that, that, that – if I'm Jay Bateman, one thing, and I know we're getting ahead of ourselves in the game plan part here. If I'm Jay Bateman, one of the things that I do here is I want to put my best interior pass rusher over their right guard a lot because I think that right guard has given up some pressure based on just watching games. And I actually haven't looked at it on pro football focus. But I think there's some weakness there uh, between the center and the right guard. And I'd want to put some guys there to try to get some penetration up the middle uh, and that's where Vohasic or particularly Miles Murphy with his height and wingspan, if you can compress the pocket on him from the inside with those guys that are bigger with a shorter quarterback, that really affects them. And so I think that's something that, that you have to do in this game to, to have success. Indeed. Let's, uh, let's take a break and get to that game plan portion because it's going to be an interesting one. Let me talk about Johnny T-shirt. I missed, mentioned them earlier. Uh, they're certainly proud sponsors of the Inside Carolina podcast and friends of Inside Carolina. Most of all, friends of you, the Inside Carolina listener, if you're a premium subscriber because you get that 10%. So uh, I see sales every day with their email list, including uh, whatever you could possibly want at Johnny T-shirt. Sweatshirts, jerseys, gifts for your lady, gifts for your man, uh, tailgating, all that kind of stuff. Gifts for your kids, if you want to buy your kids anything for Christmas. For your lady. For your lady. And uh, anything you could possibly want, please shop them. I know there are other places out there to to buy stuff, but Johnny T-shirts, what you need to support. I mean, you need to shop local more than now, more than ever. Now's the time to do that locally owned and operated alumni. You know, what, what else can you ask for a store that, sends you Carolina gear, they're all about Carolina, and they're all about inside Carolina. Take care of them as they take care of us. We'll take a short break. National guys pay the bills. We'll be right back. Game plan, Jason, Greg, and all that Jason's got going on in a new book. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. 
Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. We're back. It's the Inside Carolina Podcast. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley. It's the game plan. I've got Greg Barnes and Jason Staples. Jason Staples on triple duty. So let's get into it, boys. Uh, De'Eric King and Carolina's in Miami's defense. I'm watching Jason on YouTube. But but if you're not watching on YouTube, you're missing out. De'Eric King in Miami's offense versus Carolina's defense. Greg, I listen to Jay Bateman a lot uh, this week and listen to you guys talking to him. I mean, I, I think you could learn a lot from the Notre Dame game as a defensive coordinator and maybe as a player, but I'm not so sure that it's the same as it'll be down in Miami. So what can Carolina do better and more effectively than they did against that Notre Dame team that basically had their way? Well, I think what people need to understand is for North Carolina to have success defensively in any game right now, because they do not have a, a talent advantage up front against most teams. They, they have to execute, uh, I don't want to say flawlessly, but almost. And so the games where they've played well, and Notre Dame is one of them, um, they communicated very well. Uh, and everybody knew what they were supposed to be doing. And they, for the most part, they executed. Did they lose at the point of attack sometimes? Yeah, that's going to happen against a, a front like Notre Dame has. Um, and, and the fact that Notre Dame had success, I think, kind of speaks to the, the fact that North Carolina, when they were doing what they were supposed to be doing, they still lost uh, and, and gave up you know, 31 points in that game. And that just kind of speaks to where this team has to grow. But when they've had success and they've battled, it's because they've done all the little things correct. Um, and that, that's what's got to happen here. And so I, I think we need to lay that down. First, you know, first and foremost, that's the most important aspect. Um, and then the other thing is you really have to decide. I thought – I'd like to hear Jason's take on this. I thought North Carolina did a pretty good job in terms of their approach with Ian Book. Um, you know, were there some breakdowns? Yes, and Jason highlighted that the Trey Morrison play pretty well. That's kind of a glaring play early in that game. Um, but they had opportunities to get booked down and just didn't. And so schematically, I mean – that's what you want. You want to put yourself in position to be able to, to make plays that, that drop the quarterback for a loss. Uh, and so I think from that standpoint, they did okay. And that's kind of what you're looking for here. Now, King's going to do a lot more RPO stuff. That's, that's kind of where a lot of his runs come from. So it's a little bit different than what Notre Dame necessarily is going to do. Uh, but kind of the same idea. You know, and a lot of teams, when they run RPO stuff, uh, you're going to go for the running back because you want the quarterback to run probably not the case in this situation and so you're gonna to have to be a little bit more conservative in how you handle those things but if you can keep him in the pocket that's that's kind of what you're looking for um, when you look at what Miami does offensively a little bit surprising I mean North Carolina is averaging uh, I think 3.3 explosive plays of 30 yards or more per game Miami's at 3.2 so pretty even in terms of what they've done Miami does have more rushing plays that have gone for long yardage so uh, North Carolina has to be aware of that. I think by, by trying to contain King um, and keep him in the pocket, that allows you to compress the pocket if you get a good push, and that's where you get into some of those issues that he can have. I think that's the primary thing. They do have some good tight ends, uh, maybe the best pair in the ACC, uh, and so that's something to watch out for. Lashley like the, likes to use these, uh, these bunch formations with their, his halfbacks or tight ends. And then they do have a, a good running back. So uh, it's not a great offense necessarily, but it's an effective offense primarily because of what, what King does. And that's the challenge, trying to scheme around him. Jason, looking at Miami's offense, Greg mentioned the tight ends. I mean, that should be worrisome there, maybe even more than King. Because if you well, look I, at- I, I agree. 
If you look at what Wake Forest, and I don't know if it equates, but the way Wake Forest was able to get matchups on linebackers and wear Carolina out, I see them being able to do that. But I want you to talk about that aspect. But does Miami, from your watching the Hurricanes, do they have an offensive line that can just manhandle Carolina's front like Notre Dame did at times? I've not been impressed by Miami's offensive line this year, to be honest. Um, they've – I would put them – I would put them in that in that group of offensive lines that's it's not great, but is above average, perhaps, you know, average to above average. I don't think they're as good as North Carolina's offensive line. So, you know, but I, I think I think North Carolina's offensive line is very talented overall. There have been some breakdowns and a few of the guys this year, I, I feel like could lose a little bit of weight going into next year. But overall, my impression has been that Miami schemed around some offensive line issues at times uh, and that King has covered over some offensive line issues at other times. And, you know, that's, that's really – if you watch the Clemson game, you watch their offensive line just get manhandled. And that's not what happened in Notre Dame against Clemson. I mean, you, you look at the numbers against, against Clemson and <laughs> they're ugly. I'm, I'm going to pull up the rushing numbers – against Clemson here, 25 carries for 89 yards, 3.56 yards per carry. And if I remember correctly, there was one breakout run uh, in the second half. I think that was King for like 50 of those, of those yards. They averaged under two yards a carry through most of the game. There was one run that, that, that didn't matter. But the game was out of hand by that point that raised that, that yards per carry. And they just couldn't run it. And that's, that was because they got manhandled up front. Now, North Carolina is not going to manhandle that offensive line. But I have seen some weaknesses there that I think, I think Bateman and Carolina can, can take advantage of. Like I said, I think you can – if you put a strong guy like Bohasic over their right guard, I think, you can, I think you can move him backwards. I think you can get some position in the, in the backfield. Uh, I think both of their tackles have at times been speed rushed a little bit this year. So, you know, you've got some opportunities there. And, and I agree with Greg. I think they did a really good job of scheming for Book. And I think a lot of the same stuff that they did for Book, they can do in this game, but they should have a little more success with it up front than they did against Notre Dame, who, you know, when I've gone back and I've looked at the Notre Dame tape, you know, collecting some of the clips that I've done the last couple of weeks, uh, it's, I, I just am so impressed by how not only well-schooled those guys are, but how disciplined they were up front. I mean, th those guys, they just, even when a guy was off balance and wasn't in exactly the right position, he knew exactly how to recover and get his hands on a guy and make it take a play from being a five yard gain to a 15 yard gain just by that. And I don't see that from Miami as much. So decent, going to give him, going to give some North Carolina some problems at times. Yes. But I don't think that this is a line that is going to manhandle Carolina up front or it shouldn't. And I think that there are some things that Carolina can do. Like I said, I like what they did against, against Book. One of the things that they did, by the way, is that they actually usually try to get Surratt as the free runner uh, up against the, the quarterback who, who's, uh, let's say, scrambling. This, in that game, they, they would bring Surratt as a rusher and, and spring Gemmel to be that guy that would, that would run just to give a, a different look at times. Uh, and try to for they would try to force the quarterback to run one specific direction, these sorts of things. So if you are going to leave the pocket, you're going to have to leave the pocket here, and we've got one guy who's got his eyes on the quarterback who can come up and make the tackle there. And that's the kind of stuff that you can do. I expect to see that stuff from Bateman and his defense this time around. Talk about the tight ends. Brevin Jordan obviously gets all the, the ink. Will Mallory's certainly solid. And like Mallory's I said – Mallory's not a whole lot worse than, than Jordan. I mean, Jordan arguably is the best tight end of the country. Um, you know, he, he's, I think, probably the number one NFL prospect among the tight ends in the country. And Will Mallory is, is right there with him. He's just as good. He's a better blocker than Jordan. Jordan's become a better blocker in the last year or two. But Mallory's a better blocker and a more, more complete player. And when you put both of those guys on the field at the, at the same time, that's what's going to cause North Carolina problems. Yep, Greg, that leaves – uh, the question is, who covers those guys for North Carolina? I mean, Conley has gotten a lot of playing time. Is it him? Is it Gimmel? Gimmel has struggled with 
uh, pass, you know, defending pass catching routes at times, or excuse me, uh, receiving routes at times. Um, I brought up the Wake Forest game. It just, they took advantage of it, just freely admit that. And uh, so where does Jay Bateman go to contain those guys? Well, that's, that's one of the things about what Bateman and a lot of these other defensive coordinators around the country are trying to do, right? I mean, you're basically playing a base nickel these days. Uh, and the reason you do that is because you have more wide receivers playing, but also because you know, with the nickel back, you want a little bit bigger guy so that he can come up and help and run support. Well, kind of the opposite is true uh, when you're talking about trying to defend the tight ends because you know, years ago, tight ends were basically a, a sixth offensive lineman and they would just wear you out. You could put a defensive end over top of them or maybe even a big linebacker, and that would work. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons that you see guys like, like Des Evans and Chris Collins who really are linebackers, uh, but they're big enough to be physical at the point of attack. Um, and that's why, again, I think Jason's breaking down of Trey Morrison's uh, play against Ian Book is, is critically important because he's the type of guy that you would like to be able to put on one of these tight ends because if, you know, he can handle them at, at line of scrimmage against the run, but then if they decide to release you know, whichever way they want to go, you, you hand it off vertically, but you are know, side to side, he could stay with them. Um, as long as he knows exactly what he's supposed to be doing. In that particular play that, that Jason outlined, uh, he was still in a, a growing phase, I think we would call that. Um, and so that's, <laughs> there, there were three or four in a row on, on, that, on that series where it was like, oh, what is he doing? <laughs> so eventually that's what you want, right? You want that type of guy to handle these types of situations. North Carolina just is not there yet personnel-wise. And so, yeah, it's going to be an interesting thing because do you go with kind of a, a – you know, more of a 3-4 look with four defensive backs in, although Bateman this year, his base has been that nickel package. Um, and so th those are the decisions he has to make uh, because you want Chas Rat really to be able to key in on, on King um, and, and serve as somewhat of a spy there. Uh, and you want Gilmore to do a lot of different things. So uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe you do use one of those guys like a Chris Collins to try to track him as best you can. Or if you have to, you would use a, a nickel back. But – uh, I don't know that's the approach. I'm curious to hear Jason's take on this. Yeah, it's, it's going to be really interesting. I mean, I think a lot of it depends on how, how uh, Miami calls it. I mean, what, what, what personnel groups are they going to use? And if I'm, if I'm Miami and I've watched the Notre Dame game, I'm using a lot of too tight. Oh, yeah. I'm putting both of those guys on the field at once. And I'm going to force North Carolina to match up with bigger personnel that's younger by and large either younger or too small. I mean, that's really the problem is you got basically older guys that are small and, and not, as, not as physical, you know, have some limitations, or you got younger guys that are bigger, still not, still not grown into, their, into their, uh, their paws, as it were, and don't know what they're doing. So you kind of have those, those as your choices. And so I would expect them to go with a lot of too tight. And I would, you know, Notre Dame had their most success when they put the two tight ends on the same side of the field and they ran some of those tight bunch formations. They ran, you know, tight end H back on the same side of the field with, with a, with a receiver tight. I wouldn't be surprised to see Miami do a lot of the same stuff. And if they do that, then to me, Bateman's going to have to go big. He's going to have to go more of a three, four look. And the, the real question is, Who's, who's your fourth safety going to be? I mean, do you want to go bigger there? Because at a certain point, Miami, Miami wants to win this game while throwing the ball as little as they can. I mean, that's, that's – I know Lashley, he, he's added a lot more of some of the air raid type stuff to the Malzahn uh, formula, but it, it's still a Malzahn offense in its DNA. And that offense, as much as any – if they can run it on you 56 times and throw it 10 times and, and have success, that's what they prefer to do. So you've got to force them away from being able to run the football and you've got to stop the run first. And, and then they'll come at you with verticals. And if you can stop the run and the verticals, that's when you finally start getting the other stuff. Yep. So, Tommy, yeah. let me add this real quick, Jason. Lashley said, I like this, this phrase. He says, I want to run the ball to win. And I want to pass the ball to score. 
Interesting. That's Malz, that that's Malzahn's philosophy. And what they mean by that is this is the old option kind of approach, right? The old triple option teams, you go back to Nebraska and, uh, you know, all the way back, Paul Johnson, those teams would run the ball all. And if they, if they were successful running the ball, they're probably going to win the game, but they would always have, you know, they'd have their quarterbacks that would average like 26 yards of completion, <laughs> right? Because they'd run it to win, but then they'd throw it to score when they're throwing, they're trying to score. They're throwing it down the field. They're trying to, they're trying to threaten you because you're doing something to take away that run. That's making you vulnerable to some vertical concept down the field. And they're going to try to hit that and hurt you enough that you're going to have to pull back so they can run it on you again. And that, that's, that really is the DNA here. And so to me, this is a game where I think Conley becomes a, a potentially important player. Uh, there, there, there are three players. I mean, obviously, Surratt and Gemmel are going to be important in every game. So excluding them, this is a game where, to me, if North Carolina is going to win, odds are you're going to see – a lot of Miles Murphy making big plays. You're going you're gonna to see him flash. You're going to see him getting some pressure on the quarterback. You're going to see him on the field. I think this is a game where he has, to, he has to have a good game. I think this is a game where Conley could flash, and this is a game where if Evans can flash, if those three guys can have some success in this game, that bodes well for North Carolina. If they're all on the field and doing their jobs, those guys, the physical uh, characteristics that, that they bring in against what, what Miami and Lashley want to do gives North Carolina some, some ability to defend some of that stuff. So to me, those are three guys I'm going to have my eye on every time they're on the field just because of how they, how they change some of the matchup disadvantages that North Carolina might have otherwise. Interesting take. Let's flip it. I mean, we could talk about Miami's offense versus Carolina's defense for the entire show, couple shows, but let's flip it, Greg, offensively. You know, I look at the state Miami game was 44-41, um, and then I look and see Miami plays the Virginia-type game 19-14. to uh, How does Carolina come out to – Mike Ingersoll always talks about Miami being front runners and how when they're up, they're up, but when they're down, they're down. Um, we've talked a lot on this show about the importance of Carolina getting out fast. And in the games they've won, they've tend to do that. They got up early on Notre Dame. It didn't last, but uh, what does Longo do here? We've seen some failed trips to Florida already this season. Um, does anything change with Longo's approach for this Miami game? Or, or, or do you think it's pretty much how they've played all year thus far? Yeah, I would, I would assume that Longo is going to try to scheme away, scheme around Miami's aggressiveness. Uh, one thing they do so well is they, they utilize their defensive ends, that entire defensive front, but they really push up the field. Um, and, and one thing that, that Mac Brown noted this week, and I thought it was um, an interesting tell, uh, I don't know if it was gamesmanship or what, but he just mentioned how that they do a very good job of, of moving vertically. Uh, and what that does is for teams that like to pull, uh, that can kind of disrupt those lanes. And, and Jason, again, Jason has done some good, uh, good film work breakdown this year showing how when, when teams are able to push up the field, that, that pulling guard will kind of get blocked out and it just blows up the entire play and, and the running back has nowhere to go. So that's what Miami is going to try to do. Where North Carolina has had a lot of success um, is really taking advantage of those little slants and, and the routes over the middle. Um, and that, that seems to loosen up things uh, up front for them. So I would assume that's, that's in the, the wheelhouse. I will say, uh, because of that defensive front for, for Miami, um, they, they have really been effective in kind of limiting explosive plays. I mean, they're, they're tops in the ACC uh, and, and allowing 30 yards or more plays. They've only allowed 16 all year in nine games. Um, that's tops in the league. Um, so they have been effective. However, their secondary is not their strength. Um, and so that's really a testament what those guys are doing up front. So what Longo has to do, uh, you, you need to be able to run the ball. Teams have been able to run against Miami. It's not a defensive front as good as Notre Dame's. Um, but you, you've got to – Miami has been successful uh, in kind of knocking you down for a loss, and that kind of gets your, your offense behind the chains. And that's where they've had their success. So how he counters that pressure I think is going to be the key here. 
um, and how he wants to use Michael Carter and Javante Williams in that regard is going to be important. Uh, Jason, do, do you think the, the RPO game is even more important here to try to offset some of that pressure? Yeah, I do. And I think the other thing that's interesting to me is that they, they've actually, they've got really two really good ends, as, as you mentioned in, in uh, up front They're They've got two really good ends, one of which North Carolina is really close to landing. And Phillips is like a top 10 prospect. Yeah. He, he, you know, both, both guys are good, are really good ends. And so that, that's one of the, one of the things right away that tells you, yeah, RPO and those guys is probably a good idea just because when you're pass protecting against those ends, that's, that's going to be tough. That's tough. That's tough for anybody that plays Miami is pass protection against those ends. So you don't want to get into second, third, and long situations and have to pass protect straight up against those guys. The more you can force them to run, to defend the run while you're trying to throw the ball, the better on that stuff. The other thing, though, that's interesting to me on that is that both ends, particularly Roche at times this year, I've, I've, I've seen teams run at him with that's some success. Uh, both guys have been a little, and a little bit less with Phillips. Phillips has been better than I thought he'd be this year. Uh, he was he was not very impressive before he got to Coral Gables, and he's he's had a bit of a breakout year, uh, and he's been more of a two way end in my view in the games that I've seen than than Roche, but basically, you've seen teams just straight up we're going to run it right at Roche, we're gonna we're gonna force him to to take on a blocker, and and win that battle, and he hasn't won those battles as often as I would have expected. And this is a place where with, with Tucker, for example, uh, I think there's a chance to be able to mash him a little bit because he really wants to get upfield. Use that. And this is, a game, this is a good game for using that aggressiveness against Miami. Use that aggressiveness of those ends getting upfield. Get them out of the play and, and get, get up into the, into the backers. Uh, and I don't think Miami's backers are quite as good as they've been in prior in, in the last three or four years as well. So this is one of those places where I think Carolina has a chance to be able to run it reasonably well against this Miami team. The problem is that they're going to have to run it well to win the game. I mean, this is a game where uh, I, I think, and it's been the case all year, if North Carolina does not outrush Miami, they're going to lose the game. And that, that's going to start with being able to, to run it. I think running on the edges against those ends is going to be one of the places where that starts. And a lot of the RPO game, you're doing that already. So that's where you control the backers and run on the edge against those, against those ends to keep them honest. And then, uh, and then if those backers start to cheat too much, that's where you RPO. So, yeah, I think it's really important in this game. Greg, talking about Roche and Phillips, it sort of minds, reminds me of what State had back during the burning years with uh, Mario Williams. And Carolina would run straight at him with a guy like Barrington Edwards. I remember being in Raleigh and Carter Finley, and State fans couldn't believe that Carolina could just run straight at him. And they, if he's not able to chase, and it's the same thing with Roche, if he's not able to chase, then you can neutralize him like Jason talked about. Their tackles for losses, Roche and Phillips both have 14. And if my staff math is correct, that's as many as Carolina's top four guys combined. Greg, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, one of the, one of the issues with, with having a smaller, well, let's say smaller, maybe a not as physical center as Brian Anderson, is that North Carolina, against some of these teams with better fronts, they have not had a lot of success running the ball up the middle. And that's why when you look at where Carter and, and Javante have had some of their, their big plays – it's off the edges. Um, and so that's good news in, in terms of being able maybe to go at the ends. The bad news is that you can't offset that pressure uh, occasionally. And so there's going to have to be a blend there that works. And so that, that's part of, the, part of the challenge. So, Jason, said you say they have to run it. So, Greg, I'll ask you this um, as we move towards the end of this podcast. Sam Howell or Carter and Williams? Who, who have to be the MVPs for North Carolina to win this game? Well, I think Jason's right that North Carolina has to be able to run the ball successfully. Um, because, I mean, think about what Sam Howell's done this year. I mean, uh, I mean, he threw for all kinds of yards at Virginia, 450 or whatever it was, and they lost. Um, he threw for 550 against Wake Forest, and they almost lost that game. Uh, and so 
and you know the defense is getting better. The defense is still not good, um, not not to where you can uh, have off days offensively, and uh, so that's we know Sam Howell is going to be successful because that's kind of what he does, and uh, so yeah, I mean I think I think Javante or Michael Carter, and maybe it is Michael Carter. Uh, maybe maybe you don't necessarily need a, a physical th- approach. Uh, maybe you need speed up the middle. And I think what – or not up the middle, but just vertically. Uh, what you don't want to do is try to run on Miami east to west. That's, that's not going to happen. They have too much good team speed. So you have to find your holes and your gaps and explode up the field. And I think you can have some success in that regard. Yeah, I, I felt that's what Carolina – not necessarily ran wide against Notre Dame, but I thought Carter and Javante danced too much, um, for lack of a better way of putting it, Jason. They – they were seeking the holes that they were able to find against lesser teams. And by the time that hole may have opened, there was somebody on their backs. Jason, your, your MVPs on Carolina's offense for Carolina have success on this one. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with, it's got to be Carter and it's got to be Carter and Williams. They have to ball out in this game, this, this game. And, and I mean, the thing is, Carter and Williams are very much dependent on how well the offensive line handles things. So, I mean, all, all these things go together. But Carter and Williams have to have a game in order to beat this Miami team. It's a good Miami team. And they're going to score some points on Carolina. That, that Just that offense, they're going to score some points. You're going to have to score some points to beat them. And I think given, given how good Miami has been at, at preventing – long pass plays and they 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 played some 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 quality opponents in that given how good they've been at preventing that i think that's where carter and williams have to be the guys that drive that engine now al blades being out al blades jr in this game their top defensive back miami's top defensive back i think is a big is a big deal because he's a guy that they almost certainly would have had covering diami brown uh i think that does make them more vulnerable to get it to, to getting gashed a little bit down the field in a passing game. So I'm going to say Carter and Williams, but I'm going to, I'm going to cheat a little bit and say without blades out, the other guy that I'm kind of, kind of glancing toward is Deami Brown, because he's a guy that, you know, one or two big plays from him could turn this game. And so, you know, that's where, Miami hasn't given up a bunch of big plays, but without that, without their bell cow defensive back out there, maybe they do. And then you got to wonder what that does to them psychologically, defensively. What does that do to them in terms of how they scheme or how they feel like they can stop things that may, that may loosen some things up for Carolina as well. And, and, and if I'm Phil Longo, I'm wanting to find the replacement, isolate him against a guy that I, I know can run by him or, or, or that I feel can, can uh, run a route and, and make sure he's open on that guy. And I'm going to test him early. I want to make sure that, that that guy can, can play at the level that the blades can. And I don't think he can. Yeah. And Tommy, this is, this is 20 games ago. So not as relevant as it might be, but same schemes. So I'll throw it out there. Last year, Miami held UNC below hundred yards rushing 2.7 yards per carry. Uh, and Sam Howe, course had a had a good day through for about 300 yards about 12 yards per attempt so uh, I think everybody remembers the fourth and 17 which kind of I guess South Carolina started his legend but that fourth and 17 play was probably the best play of the year for him Uh, and so that again that was another one where Sam did what Sam does and made enough plays down the stretch to uh, to pull that one out it's going to be more they're going to need more uh, balance, more more ability to run the ball, I think, to win this time around. Miami has a great field goal kicker, too. It's a much better Miami offense than they played last year. That's the thing. Last year, you right. could beat that Miami team scoring, what was it? It was uh, 28. 28. Yeah, 28-25. Yeah, 28-25. You could beat that Miami team last year scoring 28 points. I'll be surprised. And honestly, if if Jay Bateman's defense gives up 25 points in this game, and only 25 points, then <laughs> Matt Brown needs to take him out to a really nice steak dinner as soon as, as, soon as they get back to Chapel Hill. Because, man, that guy will have earned – that whole defensive staff will have earned themselves a weeks-long, uh, you know, banquet at Ruth's Chris or something, whatever their, whatever their, their high-end steakhouse of choice is. 
because this Miami team is going to score points most likely. And, you know, they, they you're, you're, you're going to need to score more than 28 to win this game. Steak and lobster for the boys if they win. Uh, yeah, I mentioned the field goal kicker because Borigales is 17 for 19 with a long of 57. We never talk about special teams on this podcast. And I got a feeling one out of 11 games is going to be relevant. Um, and so I wanted to mention it. It's been relevant in the past. but And they, uh, they signed his brother. So we're going to be hearing that name for a long time in, in Miami. Yeah, that was interesting. The folks that follow recruiting know why that is interesting um, and how all that went down. So, anyway, uh, yeah, Greg, make a pick. I don't know what the line is. What's the line now? It's like basically pick them if it was a neutral field. Yeah, I think it's still uh, around three. Um, I I think this is a situation, and I I completely understand about Miami being front runners and all those kinds of things, Um, and and that certainly has been the case. I think think now that they actually have a legitimate quarterback for the first time in what seems like forever, I mean, maybe since Ken Dorsey, um, that changes things because the defense is good. It's not necessarily an elite defense, but it's a really good defense. And when you pair that with with De'Eric King and kind of what he can do, that makes this a very tough game. Um, and so I just – I think the fact that Miami has taken care of business this year. I mean, their one loss is Clemson. Have they been in some ugly games? Yes. Have they won all of those games? Yes. Has North Carolina won all of their ugly games? No. Um, and so I think that's the difference, that Miami's defense is better than North Carolina's defense. Um, and so because of that, I've got Miami winning this one. 42-35. All right, Jason. And for the weather forecast, you mentioned it earlier. It looks like about 79 and sunny. Lovely. So it will be uh, roughly 70 degrees, started the second half, perfect day in Miami. <laughs> What's going to happen? <laughs> yeah, well, um, like I said, I, I think this would be a good time for Tar Heel fans to ask that maybe uh, maybe that some precipitation blows in. But, um, <laughs> but no, that uh, – I, I think I, I actually I agree with essentially everything Greg said, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna belabor that point. I think uh, ultimately Miami's a more complete team between these two teams, and they're uh, having having a quarterback that can compete changes that team. Uh, they've had a lot of the other pieces over the years, but without a quarterback, they've 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 just not been as as good. They've got a quarterback this year, and North Carolina to me is a year away really from being more complete in winning this kind of game. I think it's a winnable game, but I do think Miami's ultimately going to win this game. I've got Miami winning at 41, actually to 38. So we're in the same, in the same uh, ballpark there. Uh, I think this is going to be a barn burner of a game. And you hope that, you know, maybe Sam Howell has the football in his hands on that last drive, like he did last year. And, and Carolina has a chance to, to pull that out. You guys talk about Derek King and that Miami has a quarterback. What did Miami's quarterback throw for last year against Carolina? Uh, three, three something. Yeah. Give me a second here. Let me, let me Upper look. threes. I'll, I'll let you find it because it's relevant to my point. I, right. I think that Miami, while they didn't have a quarterback really until Derek King got there, they had one that played really well last season against North Carolina. And I think Carolina was able to – get it done on the back of Sam Howell making some plays. What was it, Greg? It was 309. Yep, 309, 30 of 39, two touchdowns, no interceptions, 7.9 yards per attempt. How many yards rushing? Who was that? Was it Williams? Yeah. Yeah, he was sacked like seven times, I think, something like that. Well, my, to, to my point, Miami. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. All right, well, folks are waiting. I know, I got it. He completed seventy-seven <laughs> percent of his passes, which is solid. And they uh, ran for almost 200, 200 yards on the ground last year as well. One hundred and seventy-nine last year. So he rushed ten times for three yards. Okay, so, so he wasn't effective. That right there could be uh, the kicker to my prediction. I'm gonna hold my prediction until the uh, Inside Carolina Live show. Oh, you're uh, tipping your hand already, though, Tom. But I am definitely tipping my hand because you're a I believer. Think- I think it's time. You know how Matt gets up on the big screen there before the football game starts in Keenan Stadium? I think it's time for Carolina to take a step forward. Um, Tommy, UNC's record against Miami since the Hurricanes have been in the ACC? Uh, three and 12. Eight and eight. Yep. Eight and eight? Yeah. 
how many times have they won down there recently? Cam Sexton did it. Uh, did Yates do it? Well, anyway. Uh, they I'm, lost in 18 and in 16. Down yeah. There. Didn't wear – they're not wearing stormtroopers, as people on the message boards think that matters. Uh, anyway, <laughs> we'll wrap it up. It's getting kind of belaboring the point. I think Carolina – I think it's time for Carolina to take a step forward or be the Carolina of old. We'll see what I decide on the Inside Carolina Live show. This has been the Game Plan Podcast. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley, joined by Jason Staples and Greg Barnes. And Jason Staples' children. (laughs) Yeah, Jason Staples, the whole family. Uh, It's been fun, though. That's what makes it. We're all family here. You know, they talk about the Carolina family. Inside Carolina is stronger than that. Boys, it's been real. Greg, safe travels. All right. Have a good one, guys. Thanks for listening to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com. Brought to you by JohnnyT-Shirt.com. Where to go for your next Tar Heel gear purchase. From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo, thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. Kiss the Future, new documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply.